0: Hey CNFers, got a podcast for you, okay? But first, let's discover that story, man. Baypath University's fully online. MFA and the thing, creative nonfiction writing is making this show possible. And grit and sweat and blood just mine, not the MFA programs. The faculty has a true passion and love for their work, shines through with every comment, edit, and reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer all your questions and their years of experience as writers and teachers have made for an unbeatable experience. Head over to baypath.edu slash MFA for more information. You ready? Huh. So tonight, not feeling it, CNFers. I just don't have it. I'm not going to say what's on my mind this week because it's awful dark, and we don't need to be going there. We just don't. I'm just going to drink some Riesling, and I'm just going to drink a little more Riesling. I've had almost a bottle of Riesling in like 45 minutes. And then I'm going to chase it all down with a glass of shame. I've got Ander Munson here for you. He's a force man. And his essay, My Monument, was the December issue of True Story. He also has a new collection of essays out titled, I Will Take the Answer. I don't have it yet. I didn't even know he had it coming out. But now I do. I will read it eventually. And Ander will come back on the show and we will talk about it like old pals. Okay. He edits the magazine diagram and teaches at the University of Arizona. What you're gonna want to do is head over to BrendanOMero.com for show notes. Newsletter is the jam. People are kinda jumping on board. It's uh it's pretty cool. It's the thing. It's what we do, it's what we're doing here. You can also connect on social media at CNF Pod across the big three. As you know, I'm not really there that much, but I'm there enough. So if you want to say hi there, I'll say hi back. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, of course. If you're feeling kind, I'd happily take a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And this connection that we have, it deepens if you share it with your various networks and your CNF and buddies. I hope I've made something worth sharing. So let's take a collective swig of Weasling. Weasling? Riesling. See? This is what happens. Of Riesling from Sweet Cheeks right here and just out in the Willamette Valley. It's nice. Tie one on and sit back for this amazing podcast. Another one that's unedited. Sorry, CNFers. Didn't have time. Had to throw it together. We uh we recorded this morning and put it right up. I just didn't have time to edit. It's okay. It's okay. We're all going to be okay. Here's the Andrew Munson.
1: Huh. I mean, there's a couple different origin stories that I, I like to think about. One of them goes back to when I was 9 years old. Um and I turned in a book report on the Hardy Boys and the Curse of the Crimson Flame um, for whatever, you know, I guess I would have been fourth grade. And my teacher thought it was just fantastic, thought it was like the best thing. And so she actually ended up passing it on to the newspaper and it got published in my hometown newspaper. But the thing that no one knew except for me was I just copied the back of the book. I just plagiarized the jacket (laughs) copy on it and i but you know so i've got like you know it was published at 9 in the paper my dad was thrilled everyone's like wow you know i mean you're going to be a writer or whatever um but it was plagiarism that let me there, that led me there <laughs> and and there's a i if if you look on my website there's actually i i have a copy of the um of the the page of the paper and there's a picture of me just kind of grinning like a maniac like i'm obviously getting away with something <laughs> And I, I, you know, my dad didn't know that it was plagiarized until I was probably 30, maybe even older than that. And so, you know, I mean, I there is there's a couple aspects to that story that I think kind of ring true for me. One is that I believe, you know, you get reinforced for a thing, for being good at a thing, even if you didn't actually do the thing. And that kind of tracked me into. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I I can do this, even though I wasn't really doing it. And there was also a little bit of a feeling of getting away with it that I really was drawn to, and that has informed a lot of my writing career. Like I love, I've written about um, kind of like the essay as a as like a hack. I've got an essay called Essay as Hack where I'm sort of going into some of the background of, I was like a hacker as a teenager. Mm. Um, And there's like a little bit of like that kind of like gleeful exploration of a place you're not really supposed to be that I'm still really drawn to in my writing. Um, And I kind of tap into that and it probably helps that, you know, I do, I do the writing on the same machine basically that you know, I used when I was a hacker. I mean, you know, now it's a Mac, not a PC, but like, there is that, like that sense of like interfacing with like the unknown with technology and kind of getting away with something. And in particular, the true story, essay, like the idea of writing like an essay and like a long essay, which I've been working on for a long time about like my giant 15 foot Rudolph, which is a truly unliterary subject gave me a lot of pleasure. So like, I mean, I think you can trace a lot of that back to that, kind of early reinforcement of cheating my way to success at nine years old and there's
0: there's an element to that of even though they weren't your words but you got a certain reaction be like oh but maybe if i do craft something that is of my own i this kind of feeling of that that connection and that validation you know if you can do it yourself it's like all the more powerful right
1: yeah i mean substantially more powerful as it turns out
0: yeah yeah. And it's so so if that was the maybe the uh, one kernel of of uh of the origin story, what would be the one you, that you can point to where you actually, you know, did something that was solely your own that was you know, maybe equally validating that uh, kept you on kept you on this path?
1: So, I mean, the other and this is probably like the real story was, uh, you know, I was a physics major when I went to college um, and then I was a computer science major. And then I was a psychology major. And, you know, I mean, I was kind of always coming out of the sciences, like in some way. And then I ended up taking a a fiction workshop, um, maybe my sophomore year. And it was the first time that I kind of got out what at least what I put into a class. Like I was, you know, I was a pretty good student and I'd get bored really easily um, Which is why I left physics because I, you know, I was good enough at it, but I just got bored. And then same with computer science and same with psychology. And but like when I was in this workshop, I'm like, oh, I can make something and sort of put it into this group, you know, a small group of people that, and I get this feedback on. But you could also see it kind of like lighting them up in certain ways, and I really loved that, like that immediate kind of connection to the audience and the idea also. Which I wouldn't have been able to articulate at the time, but I can now, that through the craft of writing and revising a thing, like you know, you get to build this artificial intelligence, which is like the I and the essay, that is smarter than you, funnier than you, sadder than you, like whatever version of you you want it to be, but you get to build that over, you know, in some cases, like 30 drafts, which is probably what it took to do the My Monument essay. Um, And that was really appealing too. So it's not just the thing that you can do in the moment, but this version of yourself that you can build and that can entertain people and also be sad and, you know, I mean, try to have like a, a wide emotional range. So that's when I think it really got me that I, I could do this and I enjoyed doing it. And I wasn't bad at it either, but like that it had this like effect on others that would then feed back into me. And this ends up being, you know, I mean, what I do for a living, which is teaching and running the same kind of workshop for my students.
0: And would you say that, uh, and you would obviously know this better than I, but that, um, you know, that sort of heightened sense of who, who you want to be sort of wearing a kind of mask that, that is very much a part of the hacker community as well. Right. So there's kind of some congruence there between this heightened self of the essay writer and the I and that, and then also just, you know, wearing a a hacker, a hacker hat too. Right.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, you have, you mostly know people by like your online handle. Um, and mine was pretty regrettable. I I, I went by the grim reaper, um, you know, might as well go big, I guess. Uh, (laughs) and, and like everyone else had like similarly dorky handles, but the, and it kind of creates a persona, um, and it's something I didn't think about because I didn't start out writing nonfiction. I started writing about fiction. I write I wrote fiction and poetry where, you know, in the poem there's always a kind of persona. Like it's never the eye is never quite the poet. But in nonfiction, people kind of assume that the eye is the writer or is pretty much congruent to the I mean to the eye of the author. And that's true, but like the eye of the essay becomes which is it's like it's no less role-playing because you, it's kind of what I talk about with my students a lot. You know, I mean, like when you are, you're like a little bit funny in a draft, and that goes over well, or you like how that feels, how how it felt to kind of play that way. Then you want to. That's like okay. The next draft is all right. I mean, see if you can amp that up. You like playing that? Play it. If you like being sexy, be sexy. If you like being depressing, be be more depressing. So yeah, I mean, it's not that much different. It's like a, it's but it's like a role playing that is um, I mean that you're amping out every time you're playing a character version of yourself in a way that you, and you know, the more you do it, I think probably the better you get at it too, mm. but it's not, I mean, it's, I, it's also really nice to have that permission that the version of the self that you play in the page, you can treat as a character and it doesn't make it less nonfiction. It just makes it a little bit, Torqued version, the version that you want to be in whatever way that is, um, that you build through revision. And
0: given your your background, uh, is studying the sciences and and the the somewhat you know formulaic nature of of being you know being in physics or comp sci. Um, how would, how would you say that has informed the the creative? side of you the the start that the person that started fiction but got into nonfiction. is there any connection and did one help the other did the science help your writing
1: I for sure although I mean I'm I don't really think of the science as being that formulaic I mean that's kind of what bored me with it mm. but a lot of science is no less experimental than you know a lot of art in which you're trying to perform experiments. I mean, that's kind of where the term comes from to find out what happens when you do a thing. And that's kind of, that was kind of like what really drew me to it. Uh, originally was in part, you know, I mean, we, me and my like hacker friends, we had graduated to like breaking and entering and, you know, burglarizing Michigan bell trucks and so forth. And we get this equipment out of there that we didn't really know what it did, but we wanted to like mess around with it. And I think that's a lot of what a lot of the people that i that I love and I'm interested in the sciences kind of get out of the sciences. So like it's not just formulas and it's not just, I mean, it is like messing around. It's like, well, what happens if we try this? Um, I mean, there's some risks to that and that's not how a lot of scientists kind of taught. And that's kind of what bored me and kind of sent me away from it. But I think you're right to point out, and this hadn't occurred to me that there is something, you know, I mean, science is about engaging with like the non-fictional sense of the world i mean we're trying to explain things that are there um or that we think might be there and fiction does that too and poetry does that too but i think a little less directly um there's this quote by david foster wallace that i like and kind of think about a lot from his uh from his introduction to the best american essays whatever 2005 i forget 2007 one of those years shortly Mm -hmm. before he died and he talks about you know i mean Fiction and nonfiction come from different places and fail into different places. Fiction starts with zero and you have to build it all up. And if it fails, it kind of fails back into zero. Nonfiction starts with infinity. Like you are given everything and you have to delete, delete, delete. Hmm. Just kind of pick the things from the world. And if it fails, it fails into infinite noise. And I do think that that's something that really appealed to me in nonfiction. I mean, I didn't know that nonfiction could be could be fun could be lyric could be weird could be experimental I just it was just kind of boring essays like you know or essays that whatever when I was like 18 I thought were boring um and it was really like discovering like the work of like John DeGotta and the next American essay and stuff like that in my last year at grad school that I'm like oh shit nonfiction does you know can be just as experimental and weird as the fiction and poetry that I want to be doing and then it, and that really drew me in um and, I've, you know, I still write fiction and poetry. I've got a book of fiction that just came out and a book of nonfiction that just came out. So but I'm still drawn to them. But I do love that thingness of the world. Like you get to try and like I'm trying to explain, you know, in my monument, like the phenomenon of this 15 foot Rudolph and the phenomenon of Hamaker Schlemmer and the phenomenon of, you know, Tucson and like what it means to live in a city like this. So I mean, you are trying to kind of draw these things together, and I think that's probably fair to connect that to some of that background in the sciences.
0: And you you mentioned Dagata, but uh, who are some uh, other writers, and maybe particularly essay writers, that appealed to your taste and showed you the weirdness of the essay, and that allowed you to dive into it in and experiment yourself?
1: I mean, Dagata definitely gave me some permission, and like especially his both his own work and the work that he was kind of collecting in the next American essay, which really introduced me to a lot of writers that interest me. Albert Goldbarth is one of them really fantastic, interesting writer. Um, Leah Purpura, contemporary writer who I really like. And she just has this intensity to her prose that it gives me that like ASMR feeling, you know, where you are kind of like feeling like a gentle kind of like pinpricks of pleasure. Like she's just such a sentence crafter that I, I, very, I mean, bedazzling when you read her work. And I I love, love, love her stuff. Um, A writer like Mary Capello, who's got a great book on mood that came out last year that I wrote about for, um, as my advent calendar post for the uh, the website Essay Daily. Mm-hmm. And kind of writing about like that, kind of like that feeling of being taken over by someone. Mary Rufel is another one. I don't know if she considers herself to be a nonfiction writer, but I, I certainly do a lot of her essays really. And they have that kind of like this beguiling quality that kind of comes back to like the thing that I really love about, about computers, which is partially computer games and this feeling of like playing someone else. And I think a good, a good sentence writer, a good essayist and a good fiction writer to some extent is creating uh you know, you are, you are playing them or maybe they're playing you. I'm not sure which one, but you put on like a Mary Capello, persona like when you're reading her work and i fi- and i find that really fantastic like it it doesn't get you totally out of yourself but it like helps you run that routine or whatever routine she kind of made so those are three of them that i mean i find very meaningful and useful as a writer and as a reader
0: and with respect to your to your own writing and writing discipline or practice uh, what do you have in place so you are you know you you've got various spurs of of what you do teaching and then you you've got your books and and essays like how do you how have you developed a writing practice or a discipline and what what does that look like so you get your own work done that you can you know hone and craft
1: yeah, that's become harder to do um I mean since my daughter was born uh six years ago, like I had one practice and that worked fine. And then, you know, I I had a daughter and then like all of a sudden that blew up my practice. So mm-hmm. it changed kind of like the way that my attention worked and changed certainly the kind of opportunities I had for writing. One thing that is that I've really followed, though, for a long time is just to trust that when I get like interested in a subject, I could feel there's some like electricity there and I don't really know what it is. Um, And I, like I I've been – really interested in dolls for a while and I've been, and I started, I've been starting to write about chips as in like potato chips and Mm. primarily tortilla chips. I've got an essay about Doritos in uh, my second book of essays, but I've been writing more about that and I can, you know, I can feel this like vibration that there's something there. Um, So I've learned to trust like the weirdness in a certain way and be like, you know, I mean, I know there's stuff that I could be writing that's probably would be more advantageous to my career Or whatever but I'm really bad at doing that when I do that and writing what I think I should be writing is not been that helpful for me so I what I've tried to like in terms of like kind of like daily practice and I don't really have I don't write every day Um, I try to but it doesn't always work because like you end up spending a lot of that energy in different ways Like reading other people's work, blurbing, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like being a good literary citizen can take a lot of that away. Mm, Yeah. But so, but I mean, for me, it's like, okay, my reading, my writing practice is better if my reading practice is better. So if I know I want to start writing, I want to read writers who give me that feeling that makes me want to go back to the page. And Purpura is a great example. Like I just kind of can't, if if I read her, I kind of can't get through an essay without wanting to write my own. Which is great. And you kind of know who the writers are who kind of like start things for you. Um, and I, I I carve out a little bit of time usually at the end of the day. Um, my family goes to bed usually around like I don't know 10, 10.30 my wife goes to bed. And then I have between then and the time I sort of fade out maybe midnight or one o'clock to get some reading in and then hopefully go back to the page and kind of think about uh, trying to do something. So that's I'm trying to use that kind of liminal space kind of at the edge of the end of my conscious day to get back into it. And that's, that's compositional. I mean, revision doesn't happen then as easily. Mm. Revision takes more kind of like conscious, the sort of conscious brain, middle-of-the-day brain where I could go to a coffee shop and put on my headphones and like listen to something relatively ambient and kind of then try to start tuning things in.
0: I love this idea of of you like you're reading someone and they inspire you so much to pick up the pen yourself. I I, I love it. I imagine that's what some of the best musicians are like. They listen to a certain track or an album. They're like, oh, I got to pick up my guitar now because that band just unlocks something. Like they did something. Now it's they've risen the the water so I can actually, I can do that. I can do something. And I, I love that. You know, you read someone and you're not necessarily like, ah, fuck them. Like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and like, Sometimes
1: ha- that too, though.
0: Like- yeah, right? Like, that's that's the battle. It's just like, uh but that attitude is like, oh, they did that son. Leslie Jameson, Elena Passarello, Elisa Gil- Gabbert, they, made, they did this. Like, oh, that means I can too if I just apply my own rigor and habits to it. Like, I, I love that you get that charge from reading someone to,
1: to go then make your own thing. I mean, it's a social art. I mean, it isn't for everyone, but for me, I mean, I think if you look at the stuff that I've, I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of out of being engaged with a lot of other writers, making spaces for them to contribute to things. Um, you know, I mean, I run a magazine called Diagram, which is one of the oldest online journals. I do this essay daily site because I wanted to start gathering some of the writers I like and kind of have us talk and think about about what it is that the essay is. Um, and then I do this March uh, Xness tournament, which this year is like March of Badness, which is, you know, it's like a March Madness style, NCAA basketball style writing and music tournament every year mm-hmm. where we have like 64 musicians or 64 songs that we pick and they get assigned to writers, including both. Like Elisa, is, um, she's writing an essay this year on, is she doing Billy Joel? No, she's doing Phil Collins and Elena Passarello is one of the is is one of our usual contributors and I love like making spaces that I can get these really smart, interesting thinkers into conversation and in this case like into actual competition with each other like we actually have games we play the tournament out and I love that I mean like that social aspect of it really has always driven me as a writer. And I, I get a lot out of that. I mean, not all writers do, and that's totally fine to just like you know hole up and do your thing, be your individual genius. But I really like to be around other people and see what they're up to.
0: Oh yeah, I, I think to be a, a like you were saying, a great literary citizen, and also just to to engage in this and to. You know, to be that proverbial rising, have an abundant mindset. It really boils down to community and and lifting other people up and showing what's possible. Uh, you know, to get out of that toxic jealousy that a lot of us have at one point or another probably fallen victim to. But when you frame it around community and these things that you're building, you know, digitally and so people can engage remotely. It uh, it gives every it it's a, it lets everyone in on the joke instead of excluding people.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really important. I mean, I don't think it's important that everyone needs to be engaged with community all the time. I mean, it can also sort of sap your energy and kind of get you into that jealous mindset as you see everyone else's successes, especially in social media. And everyone sort of falls victim to that. But it's I don't know. I mean, there's this line from I think it's an Edward Hoagland essay from his best American uh, anthology, his introduction. Um, I mean, where he's talking about, like the essay is a public art, like you publish something, it goes under the world, you're responding to something else that you saw or you read, and then someone else reads it and kind of bounces back. And so and this is, you know, I mean, this is kind of pre internet. He's not like a big internet guy. He's kind of a, you know, was kind of a crank, um, who stayed off of it. But in the internet, it's even faster. You know, I mean, my friends who have Google, who have Google alerts for their name. Like I could publish an essay that name checks my friend, Nicole Walker, and she's also a really great essayist and someone that I love and and one of my probably most common collaborators. But if I publish something and I mention her, like, you know, she gets a Google alert. It could be the next day or like, you know, the next minute after Google finds it and sends it to her. And that's kind of cool. I love that sort of that sense of community that gets built online. And then it, it really does unlock the possibilities because you see someone do something, you're like, "Oh, you could do that! All right, let's try to do that." And that's, you know, I mean, that's how you kind of start to build more interesting writers.
0: And earlier you mentioned uh, the, you know, a certain electricity that you that you feel as you're getting into the work, or even you know, reading someone else's work. And and uh, what was the electricity that you felt as you? started to synthesize what would essentially become, uh, your essay, my monument.
1: So this was one, I mean, it, it kind of, it came around, you know, I bought this thing after my daughter was born and I was like a lot of things that I, I'm initially skeptical of and kind of mock, which is partially this kind of civic engagement with my neighbors, this Christmas decoration, which I'd never I'd done, but certainly not on not on this scale of the my giant Rudolph. But it it was a sense of being in Arizona, being from Michigan, Michigan where I lived in Michigan was really a front porch culture. You know, you got to know your neighbors because you would see them, everyone would be on the front porch. But here in Arizona, in Tucson, it's not. I mean, everyone is like backyard culture. And then we had um, you know, the tragedy of um where Lofner shot my congresswoman. And that kind of I was really trying to write about that for a while and think about that and think about like how that created community or revealed community in the town that I live in where I didn't feel a sense of community. But all of a sudden I did feel like a sense of being connected to my neighbors and to be with everyone else who was here as part of that really terrible tragedy. So I had that kind of in the background. Um, And then when I I didn't know why I got why I bought, you know, spent all this money on my giant Rudolph. But then when I did, it really kind of awed me. This, I I mean, it entertained me for starters, but then I put me in this state of like awe and I really connected with this creature. Well, I mean, that's not a creature. It's like, you know, it's a prefabrication from China or whatever, but it like looks like a creature and it feels like a creature and it kind of symbolizes Christmas. And I knew I had to start writing about it because I didn't know what was there, but I didn't know... I didn't know uh, like the sort of form it would take. Originally, I had um, I you know I usually do like a dry January, and this, which I like in some ways. In some ways, it it's you know it's it not, it's not an easy challenge because you know I like drinking also, yeah. but then during January I was like, all right, I've been like writing about this this Rudolph. And I do find myself with with more energy in January, uh which otherwise goes to i guess alcoholic like obliteration or numbing in some way, which is sort of depressing to think about right. but but then I'm like, all right, you know I have all these ideas for a new project, and so i'm like I'd written like i don't know fifteen thousand words about Rudolph, and I'd been talking with chris sheberg um. Who is the one of the editors, or probably like the main series editor of this project called Object Lessons that Bloomsbury does? These kind of little books about everyday objects, and you know, it's, and they're they're really cool, and I like him a lot, and he's been trying to get me to do one for a while, and I'm like, well, what if we, what if I propose a book for them called Big Fucking Rudolph? <laughs> and that was so, I, and so I, I did a proposal, and 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 I'm like, you know, I could totally, I mean, this is the books that they do are about maybe 20, 30,000 words. So it's like almost half of a book I'd written at that point. And he was super interested in it. Um, We went through a couple of rounds of doing proposals with them. I mean, of course they didn't want me to drop the F bomb. And then they, and it became really clear after a while, like what they wanted was me to write more about Christmas. They wanted the object I was writing out to Christmas. And I'm like, I don't want to write about Christmas. I want to write about big fucking Rudolph. Uh, I mean, that's the thing that I want to write about. And then eventually I just kind of pulled the project from them and just realized it could be this, its own thing, which then I, I, this is like an essay that's in the new book that's coming out on Tuesday called, I will take the answer. Um, And it's, and that book is kind of about Tucson and grief and pop culture and weird shit. And, When I was working on that, then I'm like, I also pitched it to True Story because I like True Story and I've worked with Hattie before over there. And it seemed like the kind of project that they might be into. So then, you know, so like then it became it's in one version in the book. It's in another version in True Story because we did some really substantial edits and Hattie's a good editor and they have a number of good editors over there who had some strong suggestions so then it kind of like, f- it found a couple of different forms, which happens a lot to my essays. Um, and that's fine. And the book collects one of them. True story has the other one. And then there's this other weirder, maybe longer version that might've been an object lessons book, but probably never will be.
0: <laughs> and yeah, this essay is, it's broken up into the, uh, lots of little chunklets throughout the, the entire thing. And it's one of the longer true story essays I've read. It might even be their longest. Yeah. And, uh, and at, so what was the, you know, what was the sort of the structural strategy of breaking it up the way you did throughout the entire essay?
1: I, you know, I use sections a lot um, in essays, and I like the idea of chunklets because, like, that's really a better term. They're not exactly sections; some of them are pretty short. But I, I like the idea of bringing. I mean, it makes them modular, which allows you to like revise and also bring in a lot of other shit that's not necessarily really inherently connected to the subject that you're trying to write about which I think is really important and it like it's my most common when I read essays for diagram it's my most common critique that I that I think is a useful critique is especially if someone's writing something like really um, autobiographical or about a kind of trauma experience the it can have a real intensity to it but almost always it can be improved by adding in other stuff that's not related directly to the experience. Kind of expands the electron cloud of the essay and the emotional range or the intellectual range of the essay. So I really like the idea of trying to, you know, I mean, I knew I wanted to write a hat to have Rudolph. I knew what I wanted to write about my neighbors. That kind of like led me to write about family, led me to write about the desert, and then I and then I started wanting to bring in like Pliny the Elder. Um, And then, and these like, sort of like classical ideas of like the Colossus, it was originally called like my Colossus or something like that. And I kind of took that, took that down, but I like, but I like their being able to throw in these, uh, somewhat oddly sized chunks. And then it also creates the opportunity for me to, um, to then kind of like pull these threads through. So like, you know, there's a number of narratives that kind of goes through or arguments that the essay is making, uh. And then you get these like nice moments of where one section will echo another section or like respond to another section or like riff on or try to negate another section. And I like that. And it also creates like, I don't know, I mean, more different emotional tones or sort of like tones in the essay. So I could be serious in one. I could be funny in another. I could be kind of a dick in one (laughs) and then, you know, try to be vulnerable here. So I, I like that aspect of it too.
0: Yeah, it was uh, you know, it's kaleidoscopic in a lot of ways. Like you can really turn this, and it, you get different different colors that really pop out, and you get different patterns showing up in front of your eye. You know, specifically, you know, one I think on um, one night when you like um, just pulled the plug on on the, on the Rudolph and it's deflating. You know, you uh, took took that as a moment to reflect on you know your aging cat and like her you know having to eventually most likely as we all as all pet owners do if is uh to eventually you have to make that decision to put them to sleep and so like you you, mm-hmm. you know there was an element that you know that maybe didn't feel like it was going to be there when you started writing this essay but it's probably something that just came to mind you know as you're watching this thing deflate and you're kind of like caressing it down till it till it's yeah, I'm no holding longer it. conscious yeah
1: Yeah. And it's like, that's a really sad moment in the essay. And, you know, I mean, the cat that I was writing about did die. She died in December.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, Um, man. And that was... Yeah, I had, we lost a couple dogs in the last two years to, you know, just had to put them to sleep. And yeah, old dogs, but like, yeah, I feel the pain, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's brutal, but it's something that, you know, as a pet owner, you're basically signing up for. Uh, I mean, you're going to outlast most of your animals, hopefully. And, but at the same time you know, you have, you have access to that. Um, and I'd been, yeah, she was an old cat. So it was one that I was not, it was only a matter of time, but, and I guess I'd had that on my mind for a while, but that's the thing I love about, I mean, about essay writing or about nonfiction in general is like, you know, you're writing about a thing, but that thing leads you to all these other things that you didn't know you were thinking about or that you were relating to the thing you're trying to write about that show up in the peripheral vision. So I, there was a lot of discovery in this process. I mean this essay also took me a lot longer. I mean I'd been basically writing it for 5 years, which is more than I would normally spend on an essay. In part because I, you know, I was trying to think about it as a book or trying to think about it as I, every time I put it up I'm like, "Oh yeah, I got to write more about Rudolph." And he would yeah. come back. Like I mean and actually it kind of comes back to I did have like an actual practice, like you know, in December I would put up Rudolph I'd have all the lights going, my family would be in bed and I'd be like drinking some port um or some bourbon or whatever and just like in this like beautiful state for a little while which wasn't always like a literary state, but and then I would try to like write about that and try to chronicle that um and the part of the project of the of the essay then was also trying to you know I mean Rudolph is ongoing. Like I still have him. He's going back up. He was flying this year. And I want him, you know, but I can't write about him forever. Or I mean, or maybe I can. I wanted to at least be done with like this iteration, this iteration of Rudolph, so I could move on to other projects. But who knows? I mean, he's, Hammaker Schlemmer will apparently like, re, un, will replace him unlimited times forever. <laughs> right. So he's like a forever pet, which is also just a just stupid and unsustainable thing, but kind of marvelous and American in the same way. Uh, Which I really and if I were going to do this as like a book version of it, I was really interested in trying to like dig into the sort of of sustainability aspect of that and like where, you know, I mean, how does that work financially or in just in terms of the environment or whatever. Hmm. But you get a little bit of that in here, but not that much.
0: One of the i one one of the very very tiny sections that you write is the the pleasures of homeownership and in a, you write <laughs> it in its very very short section and you know you, you end it with just saying of course everything eventually becomes a ruin but our most important jobs as humans is to resist ruin I underline that because that there's there's any any number of things you can unpack there you know as we get older as we start pushing into middle age is like how are we going to stem the tides of our bodies breaking down and every damn calorie we eat seems to stick to our body and we're just getting, like, (laughs) breaking down and, you know, facing our own ruin. I wonder, like, was that something you were kind of uh, thinking about as you were synthesizing that little thing?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I mean, like, that's – it's something that, you know, I didn't really think about much when I was younger. Well, I mean, I did in certain ways. It's like my teeth were – I had like a really bad habit of just drinking a shitload of Coke um, mm-hmm. every day. Like I drink like a six pack a day. And so even when I was – this was when I was like 16. I'd be – it was part of my hacker sort of days. <laughs> I'd drink a lot of Coke and do a lot of hacking. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was really popular and cool. Um, <laughs> and But like it created these really bad dental problems where it would just like erode my – like the enamel on my teeth. So like my mouth was kind of breaking down at that time. But now, yeah, I mean, me and all my friends were like, hey, all of a sudden things in the body are sort of not not doing what they're what they used to do, at least not without like really a lot of effort. Um, And then, you know, you're thinking about that and thinking about mortality, thinking about my daughter, thinking about her outlasting me, like what of me is in her? What of the pleasure of even I mean, and she fucking loves Rudolph. Like she was like so into the giant Rudolph. And trying to do, I mean, trying to create like a a kind of like a holiday experience for her, also that'll be memorable every year, at least until you know she's too old to really care about the fiction that we tell kids about Santa and all that. Um, So that was also part of like thinking here. Like I'm, I'm really into doing the advent calendar. I do a big advent. I have like a, I have a uh, card catalog, like you know they used to have in libraries. I bought one from Western Michigan University when they were getting rid of all theirs. And so every year I do uh, a, an advent calendar with the drawers for her. Hmm. And I just love that, I mean, that sort of ritual, I'm not religious, but I like ritual. And so I like the ritual of opening things like every day and seeing something, which is also why we do the advent calendar most years at Essay Daily too. That feeling of engaging in a thing every day, I think is good and sort of meaningful for me and it does make me feel and it's related probably to mortality i guess too or to like the to like you know the slope of everything toward ruin if you have rituals that you engage in and you try to do them every day it's trying to achieve a kind of immortality you know as long as you can do it or a kind of infinity um at least for the days of advent the rest of the year you can't i you know i, I don't get around to doing it but if you can do that, like then you uh, then I feel like you really can create something that the implication is you could do it all the time, and you could keep doing it forever uh, until you can't.
0: And towards the end of the essay too, uh there's this part where uh, you know you you're you taking down the Rudolph and you're like you're having this you know you're mourning essentially the you know taking it down in that period of time or before you'll put it up again and it it got me thinking about the the way we kind of really attach ourselves to these inanimate things. Like, you know, this past weekend my wife and I traded in our old car and it was a car mm. we've been driving for over eleven years and, you know, it just it carried it carried us. It carried our dogs everywhere. It got us cross country. It it just took us everywhere and it was like very it was kinda of mournful that just to kind of uh you know, to say goodbye to this thing. And yeah. uh, so it it made me just think about how kind of bizarre it is, but also kind of how, you know, sweet it can be that we do attach these very human feelings to inanimate things. Like, is that something you kind of, you know, were thinking about too, at, you know, of course, towards the end of this yeah. essay?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all, and that's, a, that's actually in a certain way, that's like half of the project of that cool object lesson series is exploring the ways in which, Objects hold a lot of us. I'm really into collections. I collect a lot of stuff. I hold on to a lot of things Um, My wife is a vintage dealer. She sells vintage clothes. So we have a lot of old things old stuff in our house And you do I mean and I feel pretty I I actually am I feel I feel strongly about my car. My wife didn't really care about her car I mean she liked her old Subaru. It was like a 2001 outback It's a pretty good era of Subaru before they kind of get big and SUV ish so she was really kind of sad to get rid of that. But we had to – when we wanted something with, a, with that was a little more reliable um, when we had our daughter. But I still drive like my 03 Baja, which is like a Subaru that they only made for three years. It's like the kind of sequel to The Brat mm-hmm. with the little truck back. And like I'm pr- I was pretty into it. I've always kind of liked it because they stopped making it and it just becomes like an odd – like a fetish object. But my daughter fucking loves this thing. Like she's so into the Baja, and like talks about it all the time, and you could see—I mean, partially, I can see through her, like all like the ways in which you kind of emotionally become invested in these things, and you spend a lot of time in a car, and I mean, so that's especially emotional for most people. And with Rudolph, you know, he's only up for a month, and that's part of the appeal. Is if he was up all year, I think he would be. And, and Rudolph, and also you know, Christmas decorations in general, like you can kind of, you sort of like lose your energy for them in a certain way. You got to put them away, and you got to put them back up, and so you, like you have to limit that, or else it's not fun anymore. At least for the time being, I kind of do want to buy like, you know, another like eight of them, but I don't have <laughs> enough room in my house. <laughs> yeah,
0: so Andrew, I, we're kind of up against our, our time here, which I hope will just be the first conversation of many, because this was a, a lot of fun. Getting to yeah, uh, yeah, yeah getting to un- unpack this essay this essay was wonderful I, I had a lot of fun reading it. it goes in so many great directions and it's uh, I think anyone who's lucky enough to to pick it up and read it, it's going to get a lot of fun out of it so uh thank you for the work for sure
1: yeah thanks and thanks for the work in reading it and talking about it too
0: uh, of course and uh where can uh where can people find you online Ander and uh you get more familiar with your work if they aren't already familiar with it
1: so the primary space is otherlectricities.com, which andermunson.com also will redirect you to. But I just don't like the idea of having my name be like the website. Like there's something like off about that. Maybe my Midwestern ass just kind of couldn't mm-hmm. quite tolerate that. But I also had to buy it before someone squatted it and tried to like sell it back to me. <laughs> but, so it's otherelectricities.com has a lot of stuff uh, for most of the books. And then I'm on Twitter at angermonsoon, which is my – wrestling name which is also my microsoft word autocorrect of my actual name (laughs) so that's become like my you know kind of like online handle in most places
0: fantastic yeah i i I like anger monsoon a little better than the grim reaper so that pulls it that pulls a full circle right (laughs) awesome well andrew thank you so much and uh we will certainly be in touch
1: cool all right thanks a lot for having me
0: you got it talk to you later take care Bye. we did it we made it, CNFers! Thank you so much for listening. Be sure you're subscribing to the show. Of course, this crazy show is produced by me, Brendan O'Meara. Hey, hey. I make this show for you. I hope it made something worth sharing. And if you really dig the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes are at BrendanO'Meara.com. Follow the show on the various social media channels at CNF Pod across them all. Get that newsletter at my website. Win books, win zines, hang out with your buddy Bo. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. Are we done here? We must. Because if you can't do interviews, see ya!